Welcome to the Defiant Podcast. The internet of money is being built with blockchain technology and without banks. We call it DeFi, short for decentralized finance. And this is where you can hear the builders and users of this cutting edge world tell their stories firsthand. I'm your host, Camila Russo. In this week's episode, I interviewed Simon Taylor, who has the rare quality of being very knowledgeable about decentralized finance, but also about fintech. Simon is the co-founder at fintech consultancy firm 11FS, and he previously led blockchain research at Barclays. He also leads the excellent newsletter Fintech Brain Food. He argues that DeFi gets lost in the yields and savings space, but Simon is most excited about self-custody, tokenization, and what happens when everything becomes an asset class, from digital goods to art. We talked about the main trends in fintech, from B2B fintech or banking as a service, to modular banking, to how every consumer app is basically becoming a fintech company with money at the core. This was interesting to hear because it all sounds very familiar to what DeFi is building and trying to achieve. And there's a reason for that. Simon points to a world where fintech and DeFi start to converge. Stick around to hear how he thinks that will happen. Before we get to it, here's a word about our sponsors. Perpetual Protocol is a DeFi platform for perpetual swaps. Traders get up to 20x leverage with guaranteed liquidity. Stakers don't have to worry about impermanent loss because of their virtual automated market maker. Find out more at perp.fi. That's P-E-R-P dot F-I. Hack Adam 5 is the Cosmos online hackathon. And Interblockchain Communication is a flagship interoperability protocol that has been in development for the past two years. It will be launching in the Cosmos network soon. So join Hack Adam 5, a two-week virtual hackathon, to use the IBC protocol before it is launched on mainnet and be among the winners who will take home $50,000 in prices, valued in the Cosmos staking token Atom. Hack Adam 5 is coming soon to a dev post near you this October. Visit 5.hackadam.org. That's F-I-V-E dot H-A-C-K-A-T-O-M dot org. Simon, thanks so much for joining me at the Defiant Podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. It's uh, not often that we, we have someone with one foot in fintech and the other foot in DeFi and who's knowledgeable about both world. So i um, super thrilled to have you. Um, as a quick intro, uh, Simon is a co-founder at fintech consultancy firm 11FS, and he previously led blockchain research at Barclays. And it was on his watch that the UK bank performed a live trade finance transaction over blockchain technology. So um, again, great, great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I find the DeFi space, uh, like everybody, uh, incredibly interesting, incredibly exciting. Uh, and I learn a lot every time I'm in a conversation about it. So, uh, yeah, really appreciate it. Hopefully I can bring the audience something, uh, a little bit of a different perspective, but hopefully a useful one. Uh, we, we all learn from each other. Of course. Um, all right. So I, I gave a very brief intro on, on your background, but, you know, would love to hear more about how you first became interested in blockchain technology and involved in, in fintech and kind of what your experience has been in, in this world. Yeah, sure. So I was always a gamer back in the day. So I, I was always building different um, machines out of NVIDIA cards and um, ATX cards, ATI cards, as it was back in the day. 
Uh, even then, even 3DFX, if you go way back, uh, that's one for the nerds. Uh, but um, so in, in 2009, I started doing a little bit of Bitcoin mining in the size. Oh, um, but even by then, with, with the GPU I had, it, it, it wasn't turning over a particularly large amount for the amount of electricity it was costing me. Uh, and uh, quickly gave that up and forgot about it until sort of 2013. Uh, I started uh, seeing some things pop up around uh, this thing called Ethereum, and that really caught my attention. I saw the early video from Vitalik and uh, kind of just all of the announcements around it. And I realized I hadn't looked at Bitcoin properly uh, the mm -hmm. first time. And I went back and looked at it properly and really tried to understand it from first principles. And, and that's when I sort of got the bug a little bit of mm -hmm. this was a fundamentally different thing. They were changing the nature of how value is exchanged and settled. Uh, and it could be disrupted, probably not in a five-year time horizon, but massively over a 50-year time horizon. So I wanted to understand it because it was intriguing. Uh, but I worked at Barclays at the time. Uh, at Barclays, I was the uh, I, I run the uh, Rise London Lab, which mm. was the uh, essentially the startup outreach program that the Barclays Bank uh, was running at the time. And because of this, I was able to uh, offer space. We had an auditorium of about uh, I think it had 200 seats in it, and I was able to offer that to the London Ethereum community. So over the course of 2014, we had uh, Vitalik visit, we had uh, Gavin Wood visit, um, and a lot of the early Ethereum communities in London really used that space as their base. Um, and there was definitely a little bit of um, tongue-in-cheek trolling of like, haha, we're using a bank's space for free to disrupt banks. Uh, but from the bank's perspective, we were learning, right? So by giving you this space for free, we got to watch all of this community developing. And depending who you speak to, um, there's enterprise Ethereum and there's ETH, and, and you know, some people will view anything that is, is corporate as anathema and must be bad. Um, but from a corporate's perspective, there was a load of cost and issues inside the organization that this new technology could, could start to, to resolve. Mm -hmm. So I got involved very early. Um, when I went back and told the folks in, in Barclays what was going on, and instead of them saying, uh, oh, well, that's that's scary and risky. They said, okay, see if you can figure out how you manage the risks. Uh, see if you can take on the really big questions. And that really uh, led me down a, a, joy, a voyage of discovery of how you try and make uh, the world of law and finance fit with this incredibly disruptive, incredibly creative space. Uh, and, and that has always been kind of uh, where I found myself sitting. Uh, so it's uh, it's a nice place to sit. So interesting. And so I don't know if you can kind of condense this, but what are kind of the main lessons that, that you got from that? Uh, so I think the summary way of putting it is that there are not many day walkers. There are not many people from banks that really deeply get crypto. and There are not many people mm -hmm. from crypto that really deeply get banking. Um, you can probably list maybe 100 in the world. Uh, and so a good friend of mine, Colin Platt, uh, is, is one classic example. Maya Zahavi, these, these folks are knee-deep in uh, the world of DeFi at the moment. They understand it as well as anybody in the world, but they come from a, a capital markets investment banking background, and they see both sides of it. And actually, uh, I think the, the pure uh, DeFi world, the pure crypto world, views everything in banking as, as quite negative Some quite often. Not, not everybody, but you know, there, it's there to be disrupted. And the banking world often views the crypto world and especially the DeFi world as too scary, too hard to use. You're never going to be able to regulate it. We can't touch it. 
And the reality for me is somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. So that's the key observation. And you can apply that to regulation. You can apply that to technology, almost any subject you want to cover. Uh, we have seen this movie before. Uh, yes, some of the fundamentals have changed because of the new technology and the crypto economics and everything that enables. But also, you're still dealing with humans at some point and you're still dealing with numbers. And there are some things we've learned from the old technology that we should build upon. So mm-hmm. that sort of look at this from first principles kind of uh, mental model is still really, really useful. We can d- double click into to what that means, but I think that's the high level. Version. Awesome. No, super helpful. So before we get into all, the, all those uh, details on, on DeFi specifically and what can DeFi learn from traditional banking and vice versa, um, I'd love to just go deeper into just fintech itself because um, like you said, in, in DeFi, we live in kind of a bubble where we're only looking at developments there and not really at what's happening beyond. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I... I I'd love to take this opportunity for you to tell us um, what are the major trends uh, happening in fintech, I don't know, this year um, for the past 12 months that that you think are the most exciting? Because I think, you know, there's kind of this perception in DeFi that there's nothing new in traditional mm-hmm. banking um, and that there's like fundamentally a lack of meaningful innovation because the rails that fintech is building upon are really kind of um, old. <laughs> and and so, you know, all innovation can happen kind of at the margin. I think that's the common perception in DeFi. So we'd love to kind of, you know, um, for you to answer that and, and, and maybe uh, prove people wrong. Well, yeah, I don't know if I'm ever going to prove people wrong, but what <laughs> I would say is fintech is, is enormous. Um, mm-hmm. And banking is really, especially in the pandemic, in a, in a, real, uh, in a real sticky spot. Uh, If you look at the share prices of banks, they are really, really struggling at the moment. Mm -hmm. Banks' uh, ability to be profitable is is really not looking good for the next four or five years. They're they're really, really struggling, and their business model is fundamentally uh, troubled. Uh, Interest rates are at an all-time low. And they don't. Their risk models don't allow them to lend in this market. They don't understand what good lending looks like because how do you lend in a pandemic? Nobody's ever done that before. Banks have built their models of who they lend to based on hundreds of years of experience, and that there's no map for where we are right now. Uh, and so you take those two things combined, and bank earnings, unless they've got a trading desk, are down 50%, 60% on the previous year. Bank losses are, uh, are heading higher. Mm-hmm. So that's that side. But then go look at PayPal, go look at Square, go look at the folks like that who have built sort of fintech businesses and their earnings are doing really well. Uh, they are continuing to grow. I think Square's earnings was up uh, 70% year over year. PayPal was up nearly 50%. These are massive, massive businesses. Uh, PayPal is nearly as big as JP Morgan uh, by market cap. And I think uh, Square is almost as big as Goldman Sachs. And people haven't made that connection that fintech is mainstream. So that's, I think, thread number one. It's massive. So if it got massive and it's now as big as the banks, surely there's something we we can learn from that. What is it that they did that the banks have not done? Well, so I think the banks, a little bit like the DeFi folks, especially that have come across, not all of you, but so subset, mm-hmm. start at the technology or start at the business model and work back. Uh, and actually, what fintech did is they started at the market problem and worked back. Hmm. And that's a fundamentally different space. And, and what do I mean by that? 
So um, Square starts with, we'll help you move money. And we'll figure out how we make money later. But the first thing is, it's just too hard to get money from A to B. Let's figure that out. Mm -hmm. PayPal, similar thing. Uh, and then they figure out a whole bunch of ways to layer on financial products and lending and all of that kind of as a secondary consideration. So they started at the customer, solved the customer's problem, and then figured out what's the tech we need, and then figured out how do they make money. Banks, the answer to the question is they make money by taking deposits and lending, but it it almost doesn't matter what the question is. They know the answer. And, and I do find this with a subset of DeFi is that the answer is yield farming. The answer is uh, lending. The answer is uh, it's going to be decentralized regardless of what the question is. Mm -hmm. And we forget sometimes that there are problems in society to solve. And the things that go make it outside of their bubble, the things that make a meaningful impact on the world, are the things that solve one of society or consumers' problems. And can we think about how we connect to that? So to me, that's the big observation about fintech number one. I have a second one, but I'm going to stop there because I just talked a lot. <laughs> no, that's perfect. Um, so, okay, but the, the fintechs that you mentioned have been around for a while, right? Uh, PayPal Square. I'm really just to, to kind of dig into what's new right now. Like what are the emerging trends? Um, who are the innovators right now in fintech? Like what are the, the new market needs that they're answering? So the, probably the hottest thing at the moment right now is, is B2B fintech. Um, okay. So this idea of bank as a service or bank as a platform is probably mm. more accurately described. So I look at companies like um, Synapse, Marketa. Uh, I look at companies in the UK like Rails Bank. Uh, these are building just API first abilities to create a bank. So you go to uh, railsbank.com and you can create a working card and app in, in, in a very short space of time. They provide a regulatory framework and an umbrella for you to sit within and you just need to focus on building the front end and, and mm. interface with their API. So banking is becoming invisible. Um, that's, that's kind of probably the major threat. Uh, mm. is one area. But then the other thing is there's a lot more to banking than moving money around and payments and the app. Uh, mm. There's things like, you know, preventing fraud. So a lot of users care about this. Um, there are things like uh, preventing uh, kind of um, fraud, uh, account takeover, money laundering. Uh, there are things like uh, dealing with risk. Am I lending to a person that's going to be able to pay me back? Um, mm. So all of these sorts of things are now being built by specialists. So everybody talks about Oh, well, the technology in banking is really, really old. Well, actually, there is now a fintech B2B supplier that does just about everything a bank does. And you can basically build a bank out of Lego bricks. You can construct a, a bank out of all of these newer suppliers and get to market a lot more faster. Indeed, that's, that's started to happen. Um, so there's a really interesting company called uh, Hummingbird.co, built by the team, actually, who was originally at Circle and built out their compliance program. So that team spun out and with the learnings that they'd had from the crypto world and being in the startup world, basically figured out how do we take and productize this thing and make it available to the rest of the market. So that like Lego version of banking is, is a realistic thing at this point. And I think that's super exciting. So imagine if you were going to found Square today, you could actually, uh, instead of just doing the peer-to-peer -peer app, you could build something quite complete. Um, and I know um, where DeFi is going is like uh, unstoppable Lego bricks. These may be more stoppable Lego bricks, mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, uh, I think that's a super interesting trend to watch. And generally, um, there's a third trend as well. So one, it's big. Two, it's modular. Three, uh, everything is becoming fintech. 
So it was uh, Matt Harris at Bain Capital Ventures uh, who said uh, fintech is becoming the fourth platform of the internet. So mm. first platform was the internet itself. Uh, the second one is uh, cloud. The third one is mobile. So he's saying that financial technology is as big and as important as the first three, uh, which, it, which I think is huge. Um, mm. And recent Horowitz have said every company will become a fintech company. So this is major VCs are now baking their theses around finance will start to get embedded. Finance will appear at the point of need. Mm. Um, as an example, uh, a company like Shopify helps you build a website. It helps you take payments on that website. It helps you manage logistics. They'll also lend to you, and they'll also give you an expenses card to run your day-to-day -day business. Mm. So they're not a bank, but they do financial services. And increasingly, that's where banking sort of needs to go. It needs to disappear and be provided by people who are solving your broader problem base. So uh, one, fintech is big. Two, it's modular. Three, everything is fintech. It's so interesting because like, okay, um, leaving out the big part, but the modular part and this kind of idea that money needs to be <clears throat> ingrained in the way the internet works, that's exactly what kind of DeFi is, is going for and like people building in DeFi perceive the, that DeFi's kind of edge is or advantage is. You know, mm -hmm. the, the fact that it can be uh, open source and, and composable and, 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 and people can build on top of each other and use each other's pieces. And at the same time that this kind of base layer has money built into it, you know, it's, it's like yeah. these networks are made to transact and to uh, transfer money from point A to point B. Um, unlike like the internet protocol that we're using uh, today. So um, it's interesting to see that kind of, you talk about like non-blockchain fintech and, and these are kind of the same traits that, that you're seeing. And I think that's super interesting because uh, I've been a big believer in convergence for, for mm. quite some time. I know the guys at Outline Adventures are big believers in that as well, which is that the macro trends will come together that DeFi and fintech will, will sort of find its middle ground. And you can see the early stages of this in, again, uh, Square Cash um, allowing you to buy Bitcoin, but also Robinhood, also mm. free trade, uh, not free trade in the UK, sorry, Revolut. Uh, fintech has sort of seen, it's sort of moving to where Coinbase and some of the wallets were four or five years ago. And actually, why doesn't that come together? So the interesting thing, depending on where you're standing, there's either an on-ramp to crypto or an off-ramp from the old world of finance. Mm. But all of the capital and all of the users are in the old world of finance. And for me, that's going to have to be bridged at some point. Now, you can build an alternate universe and grow that alternate universe to a certain size and scale. And maybe you never have to bridge the two, but I would imagine at some point you're going to have to. And... DeFi probably has quite a ways to run before it has to really be backwardly compatible in any way, shape, or form. But fintech actually becomes an interesting bridging sort of, um, you know, uh, a 1.5 technology if DeFi is financed 2.0. It becomes a really nice space where it's solved for consumer problems, it's solved for business problems and market problems, and is really deeply understood the customer. And it would quite happily work with better rails if somebody could provide them. Which is why it doesn't surprise me that Jack Dorsey is spending so much time looking at Bitcoin and crypto, and they have um, Square Crypto and, and kind of that whole Blue Sky initiative, because they are really trying to look for tech upgrades and Rails upgrades, because most of the financial services stuff was, was kind of built in the 70s. 
But there's probably more value for financial services businesses like still dealing with that just because of the scale and the money involved. Mm. Uh, but if you're fintech, that inflection point is going to come. Mm, that's so interesting. And so what value do you think DeFi can bring to like like finance 1.5, I guess, and, mm. and vice versa? So there's an interesting question at like, when does a stable coin become more efficient than uh, as a way of moving money than um, kind of the existing rails? And what people often forget about the, the ways of moving money around the existing rails is the scale involved. Mm -hmm. So whilst the individual fees of it costs $40 to, to send something or it costs me 7% via remittance um, platform seem really, really, really expensive, uh, you've got to remember that those rails sometimes are the same rails that are often used to move millions, if not billions of dollars in a single transaction and trillions in a given day. So there's, it still absolutely dwarfs all of crypto. I know we get excited by market cap, but market cap is a false number. Look at volume. Yeah. If you look at the actual trading volume in crypto, it's still incredibly small compared to mm. the global economy. Growing, not insignificant, exciting, but incredibly small. Mm -hmm. So most of the game in financial services Actually, the, the value add is at the margins. Uh, and the way you, way you solve a lot of these problems is with, with accounting. So you move, uh, you start getting into things like netting. So netting is like layer two scaling, but for financial services, for, for like pre-crypto. Sorry, that's it's net, a way net, of... It's net, netting, is that like a, a company or what exactly? Netting is, a, is an idea. So oh, okay. um, <laughs> when you net off transactions, basically what you're doing is you're pushing it up to a layer two, but you're doing it with a spreadsheet um, mm -hmm. or some other technology rather than... Uh, rather than doing it with an actual messaging layer. Mm. So let's say um, bank number one and bank number two um, may be doing millions of different transactions between each other every single day. Rather than trying to keep up with all of those transactions on 1970s technology, what they'll do is they'll just uh, get to the end of the day and they'll figure out what the difference is. And then um, if bank number one is net uh, owing bank number two money, they just move the net value. They just do one single transaction for the net value. It's layer two scaling for banking. Layer two scaling has been around as an idea for decades. It's not a new thing. Uh, so what I think is interesting about financial services is you see that it has emergent properties and people don't don't recognize the, the similarities between the two. And actually, layer two scaling is netting. Netting is layer two scaling. Uh, it's just using different technology. But actually, netting is incredibly powerful in the financial system. It doesn't solve all of the world's ills, but it is incredibly powerful. So there are ways you can dramatically reduce costs uh, without necessarily changing the technology. For example, a company like TransferWise, um, they're able to reduce a lot of the hidden fees in, in remittances around the world to be competitive with anybody who's got a stablecoin offering because they now have volume and they have a number of users. Now, would they want to be users of a stablecoin platform? Yes, maybe one day. But for most of their customers, those users couldn't use the stablecoin. So they've got an adoption problem. Mm. So like the on and off ramp then becomes really important to a company like TransferWise. So this is why I think in order to really get adoption, we have to understand these 1.5 areas and these areas in which how would we get this beyond the petri dish? How do we get it beyond, this is a really nice way to speculate, it's a really nice uh, asset class, uh, it's a really nice way to buy an option on the future, you know, 
Bitcoin has arguably become digital gold, somewhat mainstream in, in that sense. It's it's used in 401ks. Like that's lovely. But what are the problems we could actually solve with this stuff? And that's where it gets much more interesting. Right. So yeah, what what do you think are the, the main problems that, that DeFi can solve for kind of the everyday person right now? Like you mentioned stable coins. Um, and I, I guess like that solves the problem of having cheap international transfers. Um, I guess like to me, like that's one thing that it, it definitely does better. Maybe um, savings, right? Anywhere, like getting kind of a dollar-based account or curious what, what your thoughts are on. For me, it's modular rails. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you make the rails of financial services modular and Lego? Uh, and how do you do, how do you bake compliance? Into that? And, and that's going to be a controversial opinion because mm-hmm. different countries have different laws and rules and you might not agree with one country's and you might agree with another's or you might not just think rules are bad, period. Uh, but they, those go back to the first principles. Why did those rules get put in place in the first place? It wasn't because there's, um, well, in my opinion, it's not because there's an evil shadow uh, second world government that's trying to control our lives. It was actually much more to do with trying to keep up with some level of public opinion. Uh, it's an imperfect system, democracy, but ultimately regulators are there to prevent bad things from happening. That may be subjective intent. They may not be succeeding. There may be a million things wrong with it. But why is it there? Understand why that thing was put into place uh, in society in the first place. And there are a number of things that we could do if we got really creative to start to solve some of the reasons. Like, I'm trying to send money from A to B. I sent it to the wrong person. What happens now? Uh, I didn't mean to. I had a fat finger error. Think about your grandparents using this stuff. Um, Unfortunately, not everybody is tech savvy. And the problem with being your own bank is you have your own bank robbers. And I think there is a perception in crypto and in DeFi to a certain degree that, well, if I'm sophisticated enough to to kind of run this rat race and and be okay, then everyone else should be survival of the fittest, which is fine, but you're never going to scale that thing. You're never going to change the world with that perspective. Uh, And so there are a number of good wallets that are building better user experience that are trying to bring in the mainstream with DeFi savings, as people are calling it. Um, I don't know if that's the right approach. I think getting getting a different marketing for what that asset class is and understanding why it works. Mm-hmm. But let's just step back and go to what problems in society need to be solved if we had um, sort of composable financial services rails. And I think that's a really interesting conversation to have, to which I don't know the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's why I find it so exciting. Okay, so so to you, the you think you're not sure what, what exactly are the big... Um, use cases or problems that DeFi can solve, but the the answer lies in this kind of composable finance that it has the potential to build. Yeah, the answer lies in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, if I was, so Colin Platt always gets excited by um, direct custody. This is the idea that um, a financial institution could custody their own asset. Mm-hmm. Um, why is that important? Well, today they're reliant on custodian banks and a number of other intermediaries, and you create a lot of efficiency there in, in, in world trade. Uh, tokenization as a rule is, is super, super interesting, especially if you can make everything tradable. Mm. Um, I, I get excited by what happens when everything's an asset class. Uh, what happens, uh, how do you create rule sets around that though? Um, it's the, people talk about the metaverse and gaming quite a bit about mm. how do we make digital goods and art uh, really, really tradable with the, the, the NFT space. Again, all very, very interesting. I think DeFi gets lost in yield, um, savings, and kind of that space. 
But from a mainstream perspective, where's the value going to be? I think it's going to be solving problems in either um, the gaming space, in the tokenization space, or, or kind of else. Um, so there are some other perspectives out there, but, mm-hmm. but I just don't know what's coming first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's all so new. I mean, super hard mm-hmm. to predict, obviously. Um, and so you've touched on kind of the, the roadblocks to to get there, to kind of get DeFi to mainstream. Um, regulation is a big one. Um, these adoption, like on-ramps, is another one. Can you kind of talk more about, about that, about these roadblocks? Um, and I guess particularly interesting is regulation uh, from kind of your perspective, since you know more about how that works in traditional banking. How do you think DeFi can bridge that yeah so let's start at how does regulation work in traditional banking because my answer is um not very well um unfortunately and i think this is a huge area of opportunity for 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 DeFi and for crypto more broadly is that um and this isn't all the fault of the banks but regulation is typically passed by countless regulators in countless countries so if you're a global bank You have to figure out what to do with that regulation. So what will happen is when a new regulation is produced, banks will put um, a policy owner in charge of that. Um, And it might be the anti-money laundering policy owner, or it might be the cybersecurity policy owner. But somebody has this thing called a policy. And a policy is a written document that basically contains the internal rules that the bank will apply whenever dealing with this subject or, or this area of risk. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is uh, auditors come in and audit the bank to make sure that that policy is being followed and then put in a series of processing committees to make sure that's happening. Um, sometimes that's managed via spreadsheets. Sometimes it's more automated. Um, but quite often what you're finding is that when banks don't have a system that can already do it, um, that's been around for many, many years. So, for example, um, an ex- uh, something that works When you go and try and buy something uh, with Visa and MasterCard from uh, a website that has been put on a block list somewhere, Visa and MasterCard can automatically reject that or your bank can automatically reject it. So there are some things that are automated, but there are some other things that just fall into a queue for a person to review and then figure out what to do with it or even to take to a committee and figure out what to do with it. So point number one is, I don't know how effective regulation is. It's certainly the least worst option to date, and it's, it's a good thing that it's done, uh, but I don't know how effective it is. Hmm. What could we do about it is a good sort of second question because there's a real move in fintech at the moment. There's a subset called regtech, which is regulatory technology. How do we use data to start driving Um, some of the decisions and some of the risks that are around financial services. And there are risks like credit risk. um, That is, uh, can I afford to make this payment? Um, That DeFi can potentially help settle because we've we've got a shared record. We know know exactly where those tokens are held. So of course I'm good for it, or of course I'm not good for it. So I have no credit risk. Uh, Settlement risk, uh, will I get paid? So I'm going to put my name up for this transaction. I'm going to send you the goods, but am I actually going to get paid? Well, again, DeFi can potentially really help with both credit risk and settlement risk. Can I afford to pay on and, and will I, in fact, get paid? So DeFi can play some interesting roles there. And I think it's probably non-controversial to, to a DeFi community that, well, yeah, you get that out of the box. That's kind of what it does. But then I look at companies like Chainalysis and Elliptic and others that are now increasingly, you know, the crypto forensic companies that are coming to DeFi 
and trying to prevent financial um, crime risk, prevent money laundering. And that is a little bit more controversial, I think, in, in some uh, areas of crypto, because it's like, well, no, now we're just bringing back the state and the government. And ah, but, but I step back to why is regulation there? Like, what's the first principle we're trying to solve for? And I think at some point there has to be an acceptance that uh, the world is not me. I am not the world. My worldview is not shared by everybody outside of the window. So why were these rules put in place? What is it that society wanted at the time? And is that fundamentally different? And from first principles, what can we solve? What are these risks? And I'd go down sort of the, the major risks that financial services think about from, uh, you know, can this customer afford to lose the money um, that, uh, that they're borrowing? Uh, or can, are they good for paying it back? So affordability. Um, is this somebody that, uh, you know, is, is not dealing with the proceeds of crime or is not financing terrorism or is not potentially arms dealing? Like so, There are some folks in, in crypto genuinely who are like, I don't care. But guess what? Most of the world does. And I think actually, how do you solve those problems with these Lego bricks becomes a really, really interesting question. So I guess to summarize, stand back to why regulation exists and then figure out if there's a better way of solving those problems that society have with the new tools that we've got. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely interesting. And I think, you know, it's um, it's a really kind of hard problem to solve in DeFi because I think the kind of some of the basic principles around it are are made to kind of go against blocking people getting into these applications. I mean, it's meant to be open finance. Everyone can access it. You know, it's a decentralized public network. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how these companies can kind of balance those two kind of visions because I agree for DeFi to be used more broadly, it needs to deal with the, those questions. And that's exactly what they are, their questions. I don't think there's anything fundamentally wrong with uh, more open, more transparent era of financial services and money movement and value movement. I, I think you have to go long and far to find somebody who disagreed with it. But how do you prevent um, the financing of terror or human trafficking? Do you want to prevent it? Uh, and if the answer to that is, well, I'm just building these rails, well, recognize that you're splitting the atom and that could go both ways, right? Yeah. It could have massive consequences. So I think it's a bit, uh, it, it's a tad naive to suggest, well, I'm just building the technology and somebody else will deal with the consequences later. There is a responsibility to building some of the technologies. And maybe it's not solved by the same people. You know, maybe it's so, it gets solved later as the thing scales. Um, maybe it's not solved in the rails itself. It's solved by the apps or the or the end users. Uh, maybe the assets that get adopted bake this in. Mm. Who knows? There's there's right. so many possible answers, um, but it's uh, it, I think it's interesting to to play with the question. Yeah, no, totally. And I think um, having like this big piece missing, I think, is still decentralized identity or or just an identity that fits into DeFi. Because once mm -hmm. you have that, you can sort of kind of trustlessly start to kind of um, segment applications based on users like if, if you have a decentralized credit score maybe that user will be able to access some financial like DeFi services and than others um, if you have some some sort of uh, kind of record of like verifiable record of where that person got their money from without having a centralized entity have mm -hmm. to have to tell I mean that's maybe a, a DeFi way of, of doing that but we're still missing that piece.
Yeah, it's, it's a very hard problem to solve. Um, I know the, the work of the Sovereign Foundation um, and uh, the works of Evanim and many, many others are, are trying to, to solve this. Uh, but I'd agree. Uh, decentralized identity is the Higgs boson of the global financial system. Like you figure that out and everything else makes sense. Right. right, um, right. And it's also the hardest problem, like the Higgs boson was for CERN, in that like it's just so incredibly hard to solve. It's such a multi-layered, complicated problem, complex problem, uh, that it's not going to be solved overnight. So I I do sometimes worry that in the DeFi space, we go, well, decentralized identity will solve that. And actually, if you could solve that, you'd do a lot more than build better financial rails. You'd build better everything. Um, And I think you'd fundamentally remake the social contract between um, people and each other, people and country, people and state. because right now, the legal definition of identity in most countries is when a sovereign nation um, points at uh, a legal record and a photo of an individual and says, uh, this face represents this number on our records that was in fact born in our country or immigrated at this point in time. The definition of identity is centralized itself. Mm-hmm. And yet the UN under its sustainable development goals and many others are quite open to alternatives to uh, how we can manage some of that risk. And um, so there's nobody standing in the way of decentralized identity. What people are standing in the way of is saying there is no role for centralization in the future. Actually, if a very large uh, trader or company or, or some other entity wants to point at something else and say, I trust this thing, that that should be within their remit to do that. And that thing could even be a country. Um, but actually, uh, if that orients more around the person and their digital identity, then that could be super interesting. Um, and doing so in a privacy-preserving way would be would be phenomenal. Uh, and, and actually, the, probably the biggest pushback you'd get is from big tech um, mm-hmm. because of their business model would be broken un, under that model. Uh, and so from a bank's perspective, they would quite like digital identity. Um, they would especially like decentralized identity because so much of their cost and risk is wrapped up in not knowing who their customer is. And if you could say that uh, personally identifiable data uh, is something that banks, A, don't have to hold anymore, and B, they could dramatically reduce their risk of uh, money laundering and dramatically reduce other risk in the process, they'd snap your hand off. Because if you look at the fines that the banks have gotten, it's all been about um, you know, anti-money laundering rule breaks, which is they didn't know their customer, even though they might have got a passport and tried to find out who, who the person was. Like that system is just so unbelievably broken mm-hmm. and it's not privacy preserving and it's ineffective. Like fix that and then you fix a whole bunch of other stuff. And I think you can do so in a way that's privacy preserving. That's so interesting. Again, we're finding kind of same with layer two, kind of another bridge between uh, both worlds and how um, big banks would also find decentralized identity useful. I I hadn't even thought of that. But I mean, for any genius listening right now, you you need to solve solve this problem right away. (laughs) Seems like everyone is going to use it. I think often people see, and it's very easy to paint banks as the villain, but they forget that that's a, a legal entity with more than 100,000 people inside it, all with their own lives and complexity um, and sophistication and worldviews uh, and politics and sports teams and, 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 right? So uh, 
the problems are very, very similar and they're emergent. Yeah. I'm a big believer in first principles thinking. And actually, by understanding another worldview, you can identify those first principles much easier, which is why at the, the start of the conversation I mentioned, day walkers are rare. Because when you see both worlds, you, you can't help but see the similarities. And you kind of want to keep showing the other side the similarities. And mm. basically, that's that's kind of what I really enjoy doing. Yeah, no, it's so fascinating. Um, okay, so so talking about big banks, there's always this question in, in DeFi of will will they start to offer like DeFi uh, products? Like will they start to compete with DeFi protocols at some point or will it be uh, DeFi will start to eat away at their market cap or like w where does that um, kind of competition happen? I don't think in the next five years, maybe not in the next 10, DeFi will eat at their market cap. Mm -hmm. um, FinTech is eating at their market cap and the market itself is eating at their market cap. Mm -hmm. So understand everything that surrounds the bank, uh, look at them as they are rather than from a position of DeFi. And I think that's probably an important perspective to take. Um, are they gonna compete with DeFi? Well. You know, there's talk of JP Morgan coin. Uh, the guy behind that, Ollie, has now gone to Goldman. You know, they're, they're definitely taking it, it seriously. I think they're interested in tokenization. The SEC, um, Clayton, uh, Jay Clayton, I think, came out and said um, they're really, really open to tokenization, um, tokenization of any asset. So that if you read between the lines, the regulator is not the bad guy here. They're just given uh, a set of laws to try and enforce some rules that somebody else thought was important ones. Right. But tokenization itself of existing asset classes is really interesting. So tokenization of new asset classes like digital art could be could be one to watch. So would banks trade digital art? Yeah, maybe. Um, would they see stable coins as something they're going to use? Maybe one day eventually. Um, but actually, uh, I look at um, what just happened with Kraken getting their banking license, or uh, I look at the idea of um, the OCC in the United States coming out and saying that there's no reason why a bank can't hold uh, crypto on its balance sheet as being real signals of where this could go. So I think from a big bank's perspective, it, there's no reason for them to move first because they are very, very risk averse. Um, but I look at companies like Fidelity and others slowly adopting Bitcoin and they'll come in, right? So you, you're looking at, um, I don't know if you've ever seen the, um, it's not the hype cycle, it's the early adopter cycle, which is sort of, uh, it looks like a, a hill um, or, or a bell curve. So on the the first 2.5% of users, which probably the people who are in DeFi right now, they're the innovators. They get to anything first and uh, they they really, really will just be right in there. Um, so I'd say DeFi is in that 2.5%. If that, it's maybe even smaller than that at this point. Then the next thing is you get is the early adopters. This is about 12, 12.5% of all users uh, generally. I'd say um, crypto has probably got to early adopters. It's not quite at the next stage yet, which is early majority, which is kind of the middle of your bell curve. After early majority becomes late majority, laggards, and so on. So uh, I would imagine that, like Facebook now, for instance, is now in the the laggards. You know, pretty much everybody has it, and the innovators have long since left it. 
So you see this cycle of adoption for, for any technology. And, and DeFi is squarely really, really, really early on. But Bitcoin might be just nicely crossing the chasm. There's a really good book actually called Crossing the Chasm, which is basically all about this idea um, that uh, from that sort of early adopter into early majority. And that, if you wind the clock forward five, maybe 10 years, that's where DeFi starts to go. In what form or shape? TBD. Um, yeah, I guess we are start starting to see kind of the very first tiny steps from, from big banks, but yeah, there's still kind of a long way to go before there's a, a really like a, an actual crossover from one world to the other one. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So I guess from, from the DeFi world, what would you be kind of the, the most um, excited to see as as it starts to become mainstream like what what are what are the, the biggest opportunities there when seeing um when looking at at what's missing in fintech like what are some of the roles that DeFi can fill so i think everybody thinks the answer to that question is yield um and i come back to first principles part of the reason the yield is so great is because it's a thinly traded asset in banking terms it means There's not a lot of you and there's not a lot of money on the line and it's and it's kind of all super, super early. So if you look at the trading of any asset when it's this early, you see exactly the same as, as is happening in DeFi, albeit with not the same level of creativity. So I'm not convinced that, that yield by itself is the answer. Uh, I think the answer might be somewhere else, which is, uh, again, look at, look at fintech and look at what they would want from better rails, more modular rails. Uh, and let's take on some of the big questions around why does regulation exist in the first place and what's the DeFi equivalent to that? And do we need that thing? Because if we want it to cross the mainstream, why did regulation emerge in financial services in the first place? What was it about users that necessitated the invention of this thing we call regulation? And what's the DeFi equivalent of that? Like that to me is is the key to going mainstream. And it's why with um, my uh, kind of uh, not-for-profit uh, hat on, uh, we founded Global Digital Finance, Global Digital Finance uh, which is creating codes of conduct for any uh, business or organization that's involved in crypto to adopt a code of conduct. And the idea of that code of conduct is to say, hey, we understand these are the regulations. Here's how we're going to act to try and fit within at least the spirit of those, if not the letter of the law. And, and a lot of businesses are doing that on a voluntary basis. I'd love to take that to a next stage, which is to say, how does this technology help us do that? How does it help us prove we're being ethical, fair, transparent? And I think that's the underlying aim here. People want a lot of ethical, fair, transparent finance. This is what's really drawing people to it. So how do we demonstrate that? And how do we solve some of those problems? Um, yeah, no, huge questions. And then I, to start kind of wrapping up, I, I want to talk about this important topic, which we haven't really touched on, um, governance and kind of having users actually own and participate in the, the products and applications that they're using. And I think um, maybe, you know, you, you'll correct me and, and say there's something like this in fintech or, or like in, in big banks. Um, but to me, like seeing what, what's happening with kind of this um, latest wave in, in DeFi, um, kind of where protocols are distributing their, their native token to every single user, like what happened with Uniswap to me was fascinating. Uh, they retroactively 
airdrop a unit token to every single person who had once used the protocol and and they're now kind of they have a, a stake in in the protocol and are able to participate in decision making and earn kind of a tiny piece of revenue um, so do you think that that might be an, another another way that um, that DeFi kind of brings people in because it seems so different from like what fintech is offering, just like, you know, have people own and participate. Um, so there's a thing called crowdfunding. Mm -hmm. And uh, what happens there is a fintech business. Um, so there's a number of them in the UK that have done this. Uh, companies like uh, Revolut, Monzo, and many others ha have invited their customers to become investors. Now, the, the key difference is um, those customers bought shares um, so that they weren't gifted shares, they weren't given the shares. So there is something different there. But the other thing you see quite often in, in customer acquisition is that companies will give you ten to a hundred dollars, sometimes two hundred dollars, to switch to them. So th there's there's parallels, um, but it's not owning a piece of that thing. Um, but I'm I'm at a loss to see why that drives it mainstream by itself. Um, I can see why for the true believer, having a piece of it is super important and what it means from a principle standpoint. Um, but I would point you to um, annual general meetings of shareholders. So if you have Tesla stock, uh, chances are it's held by somebody who's held by somebody who's held by somebody else. But you can and you are within your legal rights um, to make a vote on every single thing that comes up. Most of you never will. It's, it's a little bit tricky. It's a little bit hard. Granted, the user experience can be better. But for the most part, people don't care. They want numbers to go up. And mm -hmm. it's kind of similar in DeFi. There are some people that really, really care about the governance and everybody else wants numbers to go up. Mm -hmm. So recognize the user behavior as well. Uh, I think people get uh, lost in the beauty and forget the ugly reality sometimes of, of how these things uh, exist. People are lazy and will want things to be a little bit easier. Um, and I don't think everybody will want what the early adopter wants. And so, uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. Will, will shared ownership help? Maybe. Um, and then you could imagine, like, if we're building the future of the internet infrastructure, then the more equitable ownership of that is great. But then, a bit like democracy, how many people will actually go out and vote? And uh, how much will that capital get aggregated by middlemen who do that voting on your behalf? I just it's hard to get away from some of the um, some of the first principles and some of the emergent principles of of human psychology. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think as early as governance and um, token based voting is, we're already starting to see that shift with delegated votes and like protocol politicians, you know, people kind of um, getting control of tokens and voting for others. So you've I recreated mean, the maze. Yeah, it's a reality. It's, it's yeah. a better, more efficient maze, arguably potentially more transparent, mm -hmm. but it's a similar maze. And, and this is the point, right? It, it's like, okay, we're recreating the maze, but we think we invented a thing. Not everybody thinks they invented a thing, but there is definitely a whiff of that. Mm -hmm. uh, what if we look at the old maze and go, okay, we're, we're, we're recreating some of this, but what are we taking and what are we not? And I think yeah. if that's done intentionally, things could get uh, a bit more interesting. Awesome. Okay. And then last bit I want to talk to you about, um, I, I just love your, your opinion on the ability to fork uh, a protocol. You know, you have kind of this open source code and I guess like an advantage of, of DeFi and, and Web3 is that 
unlike in Web2, um, you have the ability to kind of replicate exactly the same protocol and accept, you know, kind of change the things that, that you don't like it, that you don't like. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second and then I'm going to take that hat off. Um, let's say I was a state-sponsored actor or, or, or terrorist organization um, and I had understood and infiltrated the crypto community and I was proficient with memes. I could potentially create a fork of uh, a DeFi protocol and get the community really, really excited by it to aggregate a lot of capital inside of this platform that it can be moved around without a lot of regulatory oversight. Mm. And, it, and it's quite interesting to me that Chainalysis and Elliptic and others have started to look at this space. Now, I don't think that's happened with any of them, but the risk is there. So um, whilst uh, whilst there's the optimist argument, the uh, unlimited clean energy of splitting the atom, there's the atom bomb side that I think sometimes we've just got to remember. Mm. Um, but that said, uh, to, to the broader point about uh, forking protocols, Generally, yeah, I'm a fan of open source. Um, and I'm a fan of if somebody else is doing it better, then surely all the value should, should shift there. Um, but why are they doing it better? And, and what? Uh, how do we how do we think a little bit broader about, you know, are we forking it for the sake of it? Or is this a real meaningful upgrade? Or does it matter to the DeFi community, which is incredibly small and meme-driven? Mm -hmm. no yeah, I, I love how you you ha you kind of pointed out that they'd have to be proficient in in memes because that's definitely the case. Um, memes are driving liquidity in you know crazy ways. I wouldn't have expected. Find that, yourself an emoji, and you are good to go in DeFi right now. Exactly. <laughs> All right, that's a great note to end this on. Um, this has been so interesting. I I love kind of seeing the parallels between both worlds and what they can each learn from each other. So. Really, thank you so much again, Simon, from, for joining me. Camilla, thank you so much for having me. I, I hope the audience has enjoyed this um, and it's given a fresh perspective. Uh, generally, love what the DeFi world is doing. So keep being awesome, keep innovating, and, and thank you. I'm, I'm enjoying watching along at home. Awesome. Thanks again. And before we close, here's another word about our awesome sponsors. Perpetual Protocol is a DeFi platform for perpetual swaps. Traders get up to 20x leverage with guaranteed liquidity. Stakers don't have to worry about impermanent loss because of their virtual automated market maker. Find out more at perp.fi. That's P-E-R-P.fi. Hack Atom 5 is the Cosmos online hackathon. And Interblockchain Communication is a flagship interoperability protocol that has been in development for the past two years. It will be launching in the Cosmos Network soon. So join Hack Atom 5, a two-week virtual hackathon, to use the IBC protocol before it is launched on mainnet and be among the winners who will take home $50,000 in prices, valued in the Cosmos staking token Atom. Hack Atom 5 is coming soon to a dev post near you this October. Visit 5.hackadam.org. That's F-I-V-E dot H-A-C-K-A-T-O-M dot org. I'll continue to interview all the major founders and influencers in this emerging space. When DeFi eats the world, you can say you heard them here first. Tune in next week.